Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 386 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast, presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, joined by Jill. Jill, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. It's very, I was saying, it's very autumny, still outside. I'm really happy about the weather. It is, indeed. Yes. Um, we did a fun thing again today. We did. Yes. Do you want to talk about it? you want to tell people what we did? Yeah, we got to interview Jojo Moyes. We did, yeah. Live. Live, live and in person. Sorry, continue. No, live and in person. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was at our local library, our home away from home, Cuyahoga County Public Library. Um, a couple hundred people were there, and yeah, it was just really, really fun. Her new book, The Giver of Stars. Um, we have to hang out with her. But, but my favorite part about all these is like getting to just chat with them before we go on about right. random stuff. Yeah. She had a lot of thoughts about audiobooks, which is funny. She did. She did. Um, and specific people, like she said, and I won't name names, but she said that she has a really good friend who is also an author whose audiobooks she can't listen to because the narrator has a one of those voices that always ends in a question and everything ends really high. Yeah. And she like, played it for us. I was like, oh. Yeah. I get it. Plus, I make her fall asleep sometimes. It's like the right the right narrator or the wrong narrator, depending. Yeah. But like certain narrator voices yeah. put her to sleep, which I fully understand. Well, and she also said something about how like she kind of has insomnia. She doesn't sleep mm-hmm. very much unless she's listening to one of these audiobooks that sort of bore her. And so she said she's been trying to get through the same one. Actually, I'm a, it was an Agatha Christie book, which hurt me to my yeah. core. Because <laughs> I tried to be like, well, what about this narrator of, of Agatha Christie books? He's great. And she's like, that's the one that I yeah. don't love. And I was like, oh, we're going to have to go down in fisticuffs with Jojo Moyes. That's not a good way to start. Um, but no, it was really fun. Uh, we talk <clears throat> a lot about her research. Mm-hmm. She went to Kentucky and um, spent a lot of time there. So we heard we got some good stories about we did. the people she met. Yeah. Yeah. And then we do audience questions at the end. You can actually hear them because we read them. We had people write down questions ahead of time, which I hope the library continues to do. I do, too. That was great. So much easier. Um, There is a very, very captivating, long, harrowing story about a dog. (laughs) There is. That you guys will enjoy. There is. Um, So, yeah. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can go to our website, uh, professionalbooknerds.com. From there, you can get all of our social links. We are on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds, and you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Yes, you can. And also, uh, if you're looking for some Halloween-style reads, the last couple of Thursday episodes we've done have been scary books from 2019, as well as books that scared us when we were children. So mm-hmm. no matter what level of scary you're looking for we've got something for you there and then also if you are in the northeast ohio area and if you're listening to this on monday when it comes out the 21st on thursday the 24th i'll be interviewing michael Connolly again at cuyahoga county public library i think this is the last live event we're doing for a little bit for them um but i think there's some tickets still left so if you go to beyondbookjacket.com uh, you can find all the information for that as well so and I will not be there because I'll be in Ann Arbor for yeah. my own book event. So if you are near Ann Arbor, please come to the library. Yeah. And if you're halfway between the two, go to Ann Arbor. <laughs> go hang out with Jill. I'm just going to say. Yeah. I can't remember which branch I'm at right off the top of my head. And I don't have the computer in front of me. But it's at 2 p.m. And you can find it on the Ann Arbor Public Library website. Is it 2 p.m. on Thursday? 
No, Saturday, but because of travel and all that stuff. Sorry, That's why I should have be there. Should have clarified that one just two p.m. <laughs> just randomly two p.m. Two p.m. on Saturday, the twenty sixth. Yes, and you can find that information at JoeGreenwald.com. You can as well, right yeah. on my events page. Awesome. Um, so come see one of us if you're in the Midwest. Is Michigan the Midwest? Uh, it's weird because it's north. Kind of. I have no idea if, I, mid, if Michigan is classified as Midwest or not. Huh. Okay. I think I heard somebody do a whole thing. Like John Hodgman or some podcast I was listening to, they had this whole conversation about what is Midwest and what isn't. And Well, it's funny because I'm staying with a friend who lives in Ann Arbor, and she told me, she was like, so there's a football game. <laughs> uh-huh. I can't remember who they're playing, though. She's like, but at least it's not Ohio State. <laughs> yeah. Like, Fair enough. But also... I only realized after it is also the weekend before Halloween, so ooh, I'm sure Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, and Michigan, uh, the university, and I'm sure it gets some yeah. wild college, some wild college Halloween time. Come dressed up to Jill's event <laughs> in your Halloween costume. That's what I want to see. Um, okay. Is there anything else you think people that should know about? That, I think, is everything. Okay, all right. Well, hope we see you guys all uh, this week. And in the meantime, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Jojo Moyes on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. So... Just to kind of kick us off, because I know the book just came out, and I'm guessing since a lot of you are here and we're given a copy of the book, you may not have gotten it to yet. So would you like to start our conversation by maybe introducing everyone to the idea of the book? What, where it came from? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, a couple of years ago, so it was June 2017, I was um, reading the whole of the internet, as writers do before we start work in the morning. We call it research rather than work <laughs> avoidance. And I found an article in the Smithsonian Magazine uh, about the horseback librarians of Kentucky. And the, it, this was accompanied by these pictures of amazing young women sometimes in white shirts in summer, but uh, in winter in kind of woolen hats and wrapped up to the hilt. And they were on mules and horses, lined up in teams, ready to ride up to 140 miles a week across really mountainous, rough terrain. And employed by Roosevelt uh, under the WPA scheme after the Depression to take books to families who might otherwise not read. And because President Roosevelt felt that people had given so much uh, energy and attention to staying alive during the Depression that they'd forgotten to, as he put it, feed their minds. And he was worried they would fall prey to snake oil salesmen, religious fundamentalism, and people who didn't believe in facts. And I can't imagine why this resonated at the time. <laughs> But it just felt to me like a very modern story. And the more I read about these women, the fact that they'd met hostility, um, that many people felt that women's place was really in the home and not out doing dangerous things like this, and that there was a concern that uh, women who should be managing the home should not be reading subversive material. They should be either reading the Bible or nothing at all. Um, so there was a bit of pushback, but gradually these women became beloved to communities, and this scheme ran from 1935 to 1943. And for your research, you actually went to Kentucky a few times. Uh, several times, several times. yeah. <laughs> and I read somewhere that you rode the same trails. Was that on horseback? Yes, it yes, was. I, 
I think writers fall into two groups. There are those who can do everything from Google or other search engines are available, or there are those like me. I, I feel you have to immerse yourself. And because it was a very particular corner of Appalachia, I felt it would be, uh, what's the word, a little audacious to try and write something without actually being there. So I, I made my first trip, uh, I think it was November 2017. And uh, the unfortunate thing is, I'd, I'd isolated the, these librarians to a place called Beattyville, uh, they would laugh at me in Beattyville for calling it Beattyville. They call it Beattyville. <laughs> um, but everything I say is going to be wrong in an English <laughs> accent. And um, if you type Beattyville into a search engine, the first thing that comes up is a, a Guardian newspaper long read entitled Kentucky's Poorest Town Savaged by Drugs Forgotten by the Economy. And I thought, oh, well, this is going to be a fun place to <laughs> hang out for a while. Um, uh, but to cut a long story short, I, I ended up in a fantastic bed and breakfast, which I must stop promoting or I'll never be able to go back there, um, run by a, a, a woman called Barbara Napier, who's 72, has lived there 40 years and built a whole number of log cabins around a 350-acre holler, which is probably something I don't have to explain to you guys, but every time I go into England, so anywhere in England, I have to explain. A what? A holler. <laughs> Just like, I can't even say it probably. Um, but... Uh, and I stayed in this tiny cabin, which dates back to 1830, and it has no locks on the doors, and it has no telephone, no Wi-Fi, no anything, no television. And you sleep under patchwork quilts, and you go to the toilet behind a curtain. And uh, there is a toilet there, I hasten to add. You just don't go to the toilet behind a curtain. That would be <laughs> unsanitary. Um, and I did ride the routes that the, the librarians took. And, and what I found is that if you... If you ride into the mountains in the day, you find surprising things like it's completely silent, which I wouldn't have expected. I, I would have thought birdsong, but mm -hmm. the birdsong's at dawn. And just the sound of your horse's feet on flint. And it's those kind of details that I think bring a story alive. Well, that and listening to the rhythms of speech there because it's very, very different and it's very different to the UK. And I've answered your question at such length that I'm <laughs> going to shut up now. Sorry. You answered no. it. Yeah, yeah no, that actually, was... I'm going to follow it up anyway, so then you're going to keep talking, so that's okay. Um, people, when, when you guys read the book, you'll notice all those those little small things that you, you talk about. The, it's clear that you were there because of the way that you're able to describe you know, the, the terrain and the area. But were there any specific takeaways or, like, stories from the people that you you came across i this is leading because i have heard you tell one of the stories and you're more than welcome to tell it here is this um, the mountain line story it, it might be yeah and, okay. and you're in a library so freedom of speech so go ahead and say it the way that you want to but there can be other stories but I'm okay it is a bit hear this one i'm telling i promise you it does have cursing in it so this is what i'm worried about should i do the cursing version of the non yeah, yeah. oh okay oh okay ohio does not mess around no. right okay so Barbara, this lady who, who owns the holler, uh, has become a great friend of mine. She's 72 years old. No one messes with her. You know, she's like a lot of women from that part of Kentucky. She's basically made of iron filings. You know, she's tough. She's had it tough. And she brought up two small children by herself in this holler when she just had the one cabin. 
Uh, she pulled water from the well. She's since built her own filtration system, of course. Diverted a waterfall and sure. offsets it with UV light and carbon, as one does. <laughs> yeah, as one does, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she grew her own vegetables. She was doing her own laundry. She was trying to build these other cabins. And um, I'm going to apologize in advance for my very bad Kentucky accent, but I can't do it in an English accent because it will sound wrong. You're laughing already, which I, is I, not I, a good I, sign. I, I've seen the video. It's so good. I'm sorry. Continue. Oh, okay. I'm ruining the moment. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, none of this is being recorded, right? Absolutely about. not. No. Okay, so um, I, so we were talking one breakfast, and, and what you find in this part of Kentucky is you sit down for a 20-minute breakfast, and you're there two hours later because the stories are good. And she said, and I said to her, how did you cope? Because, you know, it's hard bringing up children and doing it with all this extra stuff. That's huge. And she said, oh, honey, I was just so tired. There was one day I'd done all this stuff, and I just went outside, and I, and I hang up my washing, and I just lay down in the grass. I thought, I can't go on. I can't do this no more. And she said, so I lay down, I shut my eyes, and when I open them, there's this big old mountain lion just looking at me. And we don't get a lot of mountain lion stories in England, so I was agog. And um, I said, what did you do? She said, well, I looked at her, and she was the size of a table, and I knew she had young because I'd been watching her through my binoculars. So I thought, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. My gun's in the house. My kids are in the house. There's no one for miles. So I said, what did you do? She said, well... I lay there for a minute, and then I just sat up, and I went, oh, fuck off! <laughs> I did warn you. And I said, what did she do? She said, she fucked off. <laughs> she said, I never saw her again. <laughs> and I think that may have been the last mountain line in that part of Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> and it's down to Barbara. So apologies for the swearing, but, you know, yeah, you did say. Freedom, we're in a library. We're fine. Freedom. Okay, Safe we're in a library. We're fine. <laughs> Full of curses. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, all those books out there, so many. Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously you had the story of the, you know, the horseback librarians and the history of that. But when it came to actually writing The Giver of Stars, did you have the plot line first or the, did you the characters? Because these characters just feel so real. Like you clearly had given a lot of thought and care into them. Yeah, I did. I, I did a lot of research, not just um, on the ground, but also the, there's an amazing academic research, research, uh, resource, which you guys probably know about, called JSTOR, where you can look up really niche subjects. So uh, because it was such a p particular time and place, I was looking up things like um, prison conditions for women in East Kentucky in the 1930s, and it would come up with something. I mean, it was incredible. Hooray for libraries. Um, and... Uh, so I, I started to read that basically from all the books and first-hand accounts I got, Kentucky in that time was not a fun place to be a woman. It, you know, there was a lot of beating, there was a lot of uh, being pregnant and barefoot and, you know, it was very much a patriarchy and, yeah, it didn't look like a whole lot of fun. So I was like, oh, what am I going to do with these women? But then, as with all these things, uh, especially when I was reading about prisons, there were a lot of badass women and um, women who were just like, nah, I'm not having this. And uh, I just re like realized that through history, you're always going to get somebody who subverts it and who says, nah, I'm not playing this game. And so Marjorie, who is my favorite character in this book, who is a woman, she's the daughter of a brutal moonshiner. She had a terrible childhood, but it's left her with a certain fearlessness. She's not going to get married. She doesn't want to be under anyone's control. She just wants to do her thing, and her thing is up in the mountains. It's bringing books to people, and she's quite a singular person. Although I'll tell you another reason I wanted to write this. Um, I, just did, I didn't just want to write about female friendship, which is, as you can see, it's about teamwork and friendship. 
Uh, but I also wanted to write a book where a woman of certain years just got to have a really nice time in the bedroom with another guy who just liked her because you find that doesn't happen a lot for um, women of you know who are not 21 and dressed in thongs kind of thing <laughs> in fiction or any kind of narrative really so she has a mutually respectful uh, long-time loving relationship with a, a, a fire captain from the local mine called Sven who is <laughs> um, in my imagination anyway I'm sure in yours too and uh, but she doesn't want to marry him because as far as she's concerned marriage is about control and she doesn't want to be part of it so she fell into my lap really easily I knew exactly who I wanted her to be and, and what you find is that characters who are kind of not like you she's just someone who really doesn't care what anybody thinks can often be the most liberating to write and then you have an English woman Alice who I introduced partly because I felt that this part of Appalachia was so singular and, and different that I thought it was necessary to also see it through the eyes of an outsider because then you get the two perspectives. You get Marjorie, who's grown up there and can express uh, her knowledge of it and her love of it, but then also Alice, who's looking at everything through fresh eyes. And then you have a number of other characters as well. Um, but I wanted to write about women who were strong, resourceful, practical, uh, who were on a mission to do things and who perhaps didn't consider their appearance and their love lives to be the most important part of their lives. And that was the most fun to write. It just really was, yeah. I will say that all of the, the women that make up the, the horseback, the librarians, they all are absolutely strong, but they're strong in their own ways. They're very, they're substantially different people and they feel so fleshed out. So I'm curious, and you get a chance to see scenes from kind of each of their eyes and, and different and things like that. Did you have to put yourself in a certain kind of mindset to write these specific characters or is this something where you've written so many books at this point that you can just kind Oh no, of... I always do. I, okay. I think, I don't know, all writers do things differently and there's no right way or wrong way but I'm one of these people who needs to think my way into somebody. So, um, and I play stuff through cinematically in my head. I know some people, it's just all about the words and they'll mull over a perfect sentence for half a day. I don't. I lay on the floor and I play th scenes through in my head as if I'm at the cinema, and then I try and make it work like that. And then sometimes I nod off, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite tired. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes the characters come from just... So, for example, there's a, a, a woman of colour, Sophia, who's a librarian, and, and she, this is not strictly a, a thing from the time, because to my knowledge, there were no black pack horse librarians. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to have a woman of colour in the team, and I didn't want her to be a maid. It's like, if you look at Kentucky from that time, A, it's very white, but also B... Um, people of colour were kind of limited to the jobs that they could do. And then I discovered that Louisville, Kentucky, housed the first coloured library, as it was known. So I suddenly realised that I could have this woman not just on an equal footing with the others, but she could be a fully trained librarian. And it was like, I think that was the first place in the whole of the US where there was a, a library for coloured people. In fact, I think there were two branches of it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why Sophia is there and that's why she's a librarian. I really liked Sophia's having her in the story because you, given that time period, there are some race issues you have to kind of grapple with with her character and her working in the library. She was not allowed yeah. to work in a library under the laws of the time, which just seems extraordinary now yes. that, you know, um, but, uh, and, and this, her discovery as, as having worked there forms one of the central 
building of tension of the mm-hmm. plot because Marjorie's answer to that is, well, we, we've, you know, she's allowed to work there, but what she can't do is read any books. So we've told her under no account is she to open any books and read them, <laughs> which makes the town laugh their heads off. But, um, <laughs> yeah, causes a whole load of tension with other people. Yeah. Uh, a key part of the story has to do with coal and a lot of mining and, and different things going on. Is Was that something that in, in your research, for you, was that, I mean, obviously that area of the country, it's well known for that, but was that something that you discovered was causing a lot of um, issues for you know, various communities and things like that? Absolutely. It's one of those things that you cannot drive around East Kentucky and not see the effect that coal has had on the landscape, whether it's the dead coal mines that have been left or the, you know, the, tra- the train tracks everywhere from where they used to move it and the empty, um, oh God, you'll have to excuse me, I can't remember the names of the tipples. You know, there are tipples dotted around the countryside where they used to shift the coal. Um, and I became, to my family's deep distress, a coal nerd because <laughs> I started to read about Harlan, which you guys probably know about much more than we do in England, but that, you know, the coal mine disputes over whether a union should be allowed to form mm-hmm. there and the fact that this went on for decades and the lawlessness of, of um, coal settlements. I mean, the fact that people were effectively indentured slaves in some of these places. They were forced to buy all their food from the company store at inflated prices. Their kids had to be educated there. They had to use the, the doctor who was there who might not be very good. And this is in living memory, mm-hmm. and it's kind of extraordinary. And and also, I guess, a lot of my private political obsessions come through in my writing. And, and for me, the, the fact that you have the rape of, of a beautiful landscape mm-hmm. by corporations logging and, and coal mining, and then you have the issues to do with those who have power, you know, mm-hmm. the heads of corporate interests and those who work for them who are not necessarily treated fairly... And then you have people trying to suppress knowledge mm-hmm. among people who don't have much. Um, you know, there's these strip mining deeds that people would, broad form deeds, where people would be encouraged to sign away land that actually ran under their houses for money. And they didn't realize what they were signing away. And the coal companies could just basically mm-hmm. take everything. And then their, waters, their water would be poisoned by toxic coal slurry because people wouldn't build the dams. As you can see, I'm really interested <laughs> in coal. I'm going to shut up now. But um, I found it really interesting. Yeah, so, and it, it definitely it's a major part of the story. So I assumed as much. But I was, like, I was like, you can't have possibly pulled this but, out. But I should say that the, the, the joy of the librarians is that they feed into all these issues because that what they're able to do is advise families on, on legal text. They're mm-hmm. avi- you know, they have children who are learning faster than their parents to read who are advising them not to sign these papers mm-hmm. that they don't, you know, if you don't have literacy, you don't know what you're signing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm still involved in adult literacy in the UK. And this is a problem that's ongoing, which seems crazy to me in two of the richest nations in the world. Well, I think it speaks a lot also to libraries in general, but the fact that these women, often in treacherous conditions, would just ride these horses up because it was so important to them that they get books to these people which is just incredible. And they fulfilled a lot of purposes. I mean, if you type in, uh, you know, Pack Horse Librarians Kentucky into any search engine, these pictures are now everywhere, partly due to George Takei um, of Star Trek. I know this is an unlikely link, but bear with me. <laughs> who has 10 million followers on Facebook. And a couple of months after I saw this Smithsonian magazine article, he rewrote it, or his people rewrote it, and posted a little kind of documentary thing on his Facebook page using these pictures. And I was like, no! George, no, this is my story. You can't do this. 
Eight million people viewed it. <laughs> Thanks, George. Well, uh, maybe they'll want like a more in-depth version. Maybe, you know, yes. check the book. I, I was surprised. One of the things that it's, it's a small thing, but were the librarians really bringing comics too? Yeah, comic books, uh, magazines from the time. Like I, I, I went out and ordered a whole load from eBay because I always try and um, get old magazines. If I'm writing in period time, I find that I, I buy magazines and then I plaster my office with them because what they give you is a really good idea of the preoccupations of the time mm -hmm. and also the language used and and the names, you know, the kind of names people had and mm -hmm. the problem pages are great. And for example, you know, the Women's Home Companion, which was huge at that time, if you look at the ads from them, they are all obsessed with pale, soft hands. <laughs> Everybody wants pale, soft hands. And it's because these women spent so much time scrubbing and cleaning and scolding and that they all had rough hands. And then you have these great ads of you know these men coming in very sadly, the husbands, and saying, oh, darling, but your hands, they're so rough. <laughs> and this woman kind of hiding her hands. You know, forget that she spent 12 hours cleaning up after him. She should look like a kind of velveteen rabbit at the same time. Um, anyway, sorry. I'm a little jet lagged. <laughs> I said that to my wife, I would get smacked so hard. I'd be like, you're right, that, I very much deserve that. Well, the that. other thing they're obsessed by is constipation. There's an yeah. awful lot of remedies. I don't think they ate a lot of fiber. I kind of assume <laughs> they did, being, yeah. you know, rural communities, but not enough, apparently. <laughs> wow. You really got in that I research. Did, yeah, no, that, uh... There's no constipation plot in this book, no, I okay. should say. <laughs> I was like, maybe it wasn't in the advanced reader copy. It got like, <laughs> I know, like I don't, I don't remember that part quite so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have to pick and choose what we take yeah. from these fair. magazines. Yeah, that's fair. Now, I actually have heard other authors talk about magazines from the time period being um, good research for that reason, which never would have occurred to me. No, and I wrote a book called The Last Letter from Your Lover a few years ago, and, and while I was in the British Newspaper Library, which used to have magazines and newspapers from every country in the world for about 100 years, it was an extraordinary resource. Of course, they've shut it down now, turned it all to digital. But um, while I was going through the old newspapers, a supplement fell out from the 1960s, and it was called Asbestos, the Wonder Mineral. Yeah. And it had this model posing with a great big pile of chrysotile asbestos in her hand. And my heart kind of stopped for this woman because you knew she would have had to die from that level of exposure. And this whole supplement, which was kind of eight pages, was all about the wonderful you know, mm -hmm. use for asbestos in brake linings and this and that and how it was changing the world. And I knew immediately that it would be the perfect... I mean, that book is about an affair between uh, an unhappily married woman and uh, a, a sort of broken journalist. And the woman's husband, I made him an asbestos magnate because it was the perfect thing. She was all about the fire that was springing from within and he was all about tamping it out. And, um, and with a... Yeah, you got it. And, um, <laughs> and how sinister it was because mm -hmm. as he's doing this work, you're aware that you know, there is this horrible thing coming. I mean, sorry, I, I'm, I'm digressing a bit, but no, I used to watch okay. The Walking Dead. Did any of you watch that? Before it got too scary. And yeah. <laughs> But the thing that always intrigued me, and I think it was about series two, they used to have a load of zombies locked in a barn. And you would watch the whole of the episode, but half your brain was always going, yeah, yeah, but what about the zombies in the barn? <laughs> and that's now become a thing in my writing. Whenever I'm reading something or I'm writing something, I'm thinking, yeah, but what's the zombie in the barn in this story? And the asbestos is the zombie in the barn, which is that you, 
it's not a big focus of the, the chapter, but you know it's there all the time. You know it's going to come and bite somebody horribly. Yeah. Okay, along the same lines as the zombie in the barn, uh, you also use a You thing. weren't expecting this I was, no. but I can hang on. Professional podcaster. Hold I know where he's going with yeah, this. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So speaking of zombies in the barn, you do a thing called uh, kick the dog test. Yes. Yeah, I got there. Um, <laughs> Can you explain that? Because okay. there's a character that I very much want to talk about in your book that okay. we're pretty uh, sure falls in line with yeah. this. <laughs> okay, so um, for me, character is everything. I just, I, all my plots spring from character. Everything for me in writing springs from character because if I, I can read the most beautifully written book, I can read the, the most amazingly plotted book, but if I don't care about the people or I'm not compelled by the people in it, I will forget it, and that doesn't work for me. So I put in a lot of research into my characters before I start. I, I want to know where they... It's how I take six main characters. Where did they grow up? What did their parents do? What kind of house did they grow up in? What music did they listen to? What do they want out of life? And I start putting them through tests, and one of the tests, as you correctly researched, is the kick the dog test. Um, this sounds much more unpleasant than it is, and no real dogs are harmed during this process. <laughs> but um, if your character walks down a road and sees somebody kicking a dog, what do they do? Mm-hmm. And it's a really good indicator of character because it's like, do they pretend they haven't seen and walk on by? Do they wade in, grab the dog, punch the guy and run? I'm assuming it's a guy. That's really sexist of me. Um, do they, are they a psychopath? Do they kick the dog as well? And, you know, you, you start to ask yourself, do they walk away and then feel really bad about it afterwards? It's like the what is in the handbag test or what is in the fridge if somebody comes down at midnight test. All these things you won't use in the actual book, but they, they inform your character so that by the time your characters bounce off each other, you know who they are. And so who are you interested in? There's a, there's a father a father-in-law in this book who definitely is kicking the dog. And if you want a, a master class in writing a character that you will hate to read, you have done it with this person. I was like screaming at the book because I was so mad at this human being. So I could try, knowing that you used this test, I was trying to formulate in my mind. And thankfully in my mind, all of the women would react the correct way, which would be take the dog and go after the guy but he is he's a dog kicker all right yeah he's, he's the a, worst yeah, yeah. He, w- he would kick a puppy <laughs> yes yeah all the puppies he would yeah. he would buy a basket of puppies just to kick all yeah. of them it's not giving anything against the curl to build coal no no i will tell you about this character did anybody used to watch the dukes of hazard are you old enough yeah okay so when i wrote this character i pictured boss hog okay yeah but actually, the director, uh, uh, I've probably gone ahead of myself, but the, there's somebody writing the script at the moment, and he said he sees somebody completely different. Um, Did you almost have something slip that you weren't supposed to right there? I know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you go ahead. <laughs> Forget you heard that bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, when you did all this research, you must have had a lot of things that you came across. Was there anything that didn't make it into the book? that you wish you had, like, that you discovered from all of your research? Ooh. Ooh. I like that. That wasn't, that wasn't That's prepared. A really good like, that was not prepared. Really good. I like that. Off the cuff. From the research. Yeah, I tend to disappear down a, a research hole quite easily. I could have done a lot more on the prison system in Kentucky in the 1930s because I was really intrigued by that. I could have done a lot more on women prisoners because mm-hmm. there was some really badass women who uh, I think would have been great. The problem is, 
it was already a long book. It was like 130,000 words. For some reason, I always write 130,000 words. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, it would be a lot easier for me if I stuck to 90, which is what most people do, but I just don't sit there. Um, and if you, if you add too much detail, it slows the narrative and people get bored. Um, no, you know what? I, I wish I'd cut some stuff out. Oh, I very cool. rarely wish I'd put stuff in. Yeah. Okay. I, I always can see six months on things that I could have trimmed harder. Yeah. So along those lines, is editing challenging for you? Because like you said, you like these characters are so thought out and you do such exhaustive research when you get to the point where you have to look at this book and maybe not cut because it sounds like you didn't cut very much, <laughs> but move stuff around. Does, is editing more of a challenge for you than the... No, and I think that's because I spent 10 years in journalism where mm -hmm. you are edited ruthlessly and you are never told that you do anything good. You're only told if you mess up. Mm -hmm. So you get pretty good at just being accepting. And, and I have a really good relationship with all my editors. Uh, we have a process where I have my three biggest markets are England, the UK, uh, sorry, England, the US and Germany and those three editors work together so they do joint edits and then they present me with them and then I argue with three people instead of one. <laughs> um, but actually because they're all really good at their job, I kind of assume that oh. it's going to be better for being editing. And some things I will push back on but for the most part they're usually right, annoyingly. Yeah. <laughs> usually right. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting to me though because I feel like a lot of the authors that we've come across that had a background in journalism, they usually go to um, either like crime writing or things that it feels very like just the facts-y and it's not the way to say that. And uh, the, you put so much description here and as a journalist, normally it's kind of like that triage where you're like, all right, most important stuff and then period. Like this is the most uh, writerly book I've ever done and that's because of the place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you've read Me Before You, for example, it's a much bolder tone. It's much more direct, the language. It's it's simpler. But then if you spend any time in Kentucky, and I know a few of you have already, um, you it's a, it's a more lyrical way of speaking. And if you go into the mountains, there's uh, a lot of families who are directly descended from, you know, Elizabethan times and from Celtic backgrounds. And, and I think perhaps because parts of there are more insular, um, and I won't say closed off, but there's been less mixing and traveling. There's still that beautiful way of speaking. And, and I used to drive around listening to um, old recordings that I found in libraries of people speaking from the 1930s. And, and it was just unbelievably courtly. You know, they would say seven words where one would do, and every one of them was beautiful. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I just, I felt like this book needed to be a little more floral mm -hmm. than my, my normal books. And, and I loved it. I don't know if many of you, well, of course you do, you know, Charles Frazier, who wrote Cold Mountain, mm -hmm. and he comes from a, a different part of that. And I once heard him speak, and he has the most beautiful ornate, mellifluous voice, and you could just sit and listen to him for hours. But you wouldn't, he could read a shopping list, you wouldn't care, because you would just be like, this is beautiful. And that's, most of the people I spoke to in Kentucky, I felt the same way. And I think it comes across in the writing. Yeah, thank you. Well, I did send this book to Barbara before I sent it to my editor, because I was so, f you know, there are people in those mountains and, and in Appalachia generally who feel like they've been done a disservice by a lot of fiction and, and how they're represented. It's, you know, the popular view of the hillbilly and all the rest of it. And, and what I found when I was out there is, like all things, it's far more nuanced, it's far more interesting. And, and of course you're going to get some of that stereotype, but you're also going to get a whole load of other stuff. And I knew, 
as she doesn't mince her words, that she would tell me if she thought that I had got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, waiting the week or 10 days that she took to read that was far more nail-biting than sending it to my <laughs> senior editor at Penguin Random House in New York. I was like, oh. And then she sent me back an email going, you know, you are killing me. And she said she loved it. And she gave me a few linguistic pointers. Apparently, I had a... Um, an Appalachian woman using the word lovely, and she said, uh-uh, no, <laughs> that's English, uh, you know, mm. British. So uh, she, she gave me a few linguistic pointers, but she was happy. And I'm going to present this book in Louisville tomorrow in front of her, so I'm not going to oh. do the mountain lion story. As long as you'll be able to tell that once. I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm not even sure I'm going to attempt a Kentucky accent tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, not. I'm not sure I really attempted it today, but, um, you know, yeah. Um, do we want to do some? Yeah, let's. Okay. Yeah, so you guys previously you wrote yeah. in a whole bunch of questions, so we're going to read go yours now. So I'll let you start and go ahead. Okay. Um, so, which of your books that you've written is your favorite? It's going to sound really bad, but it's this one, and I know it, up till now it was me before you. But I enjoyed writing this book so much, I can't tell you. All the research was fun because it had all my favorite things, which was horses and wild country. And I loved, I loved writing in this voice, which, which was new to me. And I, loved, I felt like I was learning a new skill. Um, and I loved writing about these women. And I really hope that people like it enough that I could do it again. I'll tell you one thing about the genesis of this story, which I forgot to mention. And I, I had forgotten, in fact, until last week. Um, I do a lot of work in Hollywood now and I'd been asked if I would pitch a, a television series and I'd heard about these, li I'd read about these librarians and this was, oh, this is a couple of years ago and I thought, I know what I could do. I want to do a reboot of Dr. Quinn, Medicine <gasps> Women, but with librarians. Yes. And yes. I pitched it at this very female-led, female-friendly company and I gave this great spiel and I thought this is going to be right up their street and they went, nah, we don't really do historical um, and then I was just like, okay, well, it'll be a book, and yeah. Um, missed opportunity by them. Missed opportunity, yes. it's up to you. Uh, what authors do you read? And for a second question, what are you reading right now? Ooh, what am I reading right now? I've just finished a debut novel by a, a, a writer called Kylie Reed. I'm not sure if it's out here yet, or it's called Such a Fun Age. And it's, it's a kind of modern Jane Austen-esque uh, comedy of manners and awkwardness about a white liberal family in New York who employ a black nanny who then gets into an altercation at a supermarket and that makes it sound much more dismal and you know conscious than it actually is it's very clever and it's very funny and it made my toes curl because I kept thinking do I do this do I do this it was just one of those books but it's beautifully written it doesn't read like a debut at all she's going to be huge yeah well, Jojo said so. <laughs> what inspired you to write The Girl You Left Behind? Uh, so The Girl You Left Behind is a, a story that's part set in the First World War in northern France, which I hadn't realized was occupied by Germans. It was a huge swathe of it that was occupied by Germans. Because uh, in England, we, we all know that to have happened in the Second World War, and very few people know that it happened in the first, too. And I used to be a, an arts correspondent for the Indo independent newspaper in England. And while I was on that beat, there was a lot of news about the restitution of artworks stolen in wartime, which were starting to be returned to Jewish families and, and other families who had lost artworks. And it was such a fascinating 
issue because it was often not as black and white as it should have been. You know, the, the original families had died, people had bought in good faith, some people just wanted the things for money, you know, there were lots of arguments over ownership and who had bought what at what time. It was, it was very interesting, especially when heavy legal guns get involved, everything gets a bit blurred. And I just was really interested in how, for some families, a painting could represent so much more than a painting. And um, I grew up in an artistic family, and my dad used to store works of art in a warehouse, a very high security warehouse. And I would walk around these packing cases, which they could contain a Renoir or a you know Picasso, or but out of context, to me as a child, it was just a load of blobs on a canvas. And it just got me thinking how objects only really have worth or meaning when we inject it into them. And so this painting at the heart of the girl you left behind means one thing to one person, another thing to, and it just forms a, a thing that lasts over, the, over a century and then ends up in a court case. But um, it's about what physical objects become when we invest too much into them. I think I could have a whole hour-long conversation about that, but you don't have that much time with us this evening, <laughs> so that's okay. Um, I really like how this is asked. So how are you able to come up with the different voices in your books? Is it something that you've learned, or is that something that just sort of comes naturally to you? Do you, you? think that means voices of characters or different voices of each book that I write? I'm, it says voices. In, I'm going to say different characters in okay. each book. Um, Oh, okay. Thank you for that. Thank uh, you for clarifying. Yes, yeah, it's what fits the book. I mean, if you've read The Girl You've Left Behind, it's a very, very different voice to Me Before You. And I go back to the immersion thing. If I, if I decide I want to write a book, I immerse myself in my research for a long time before I call it kind of marinating. I have to marinate in all the stuff first. So the magazines would be a case of that. There's a book called The Last Letter From Your Lover, which I wrote, where... It was set in the 60s, I've mentioned it. And, and I, you, you almost become obsessed by the era. And, and so the voice should come naturally through the characters and, and through what you see and read and research. Um, that's all I could do. That said, I wrote three books before I got one published. And what I know now is that none of them had a voice. And it doesn't matter if the voice is different as long as it's distinctive and you can bring the reader along with you. There's nothing I hate more than feeling a voice waver. So I don't feel like I'm in the hands of somebody I can trust. So what I try to do is just make each book consistent, even if it's different. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay, thank you. We remember you saying that you are friends with Sophie Kinsella, who personally I also love. Um, when you get together, do you talk about your writing? We do talk about writing. Uh, I should say she is the woman who changed my career because I wrote 20,000 words of me before you way back in oh, something like 2008. And then I lost confidence because my writing career was kind of in the doldrums at the time. And I thought, this is a really weird subject and no one's going to want to read it. And she took me out to lunch um, and... I was broke at the time, and she did it very elegantly. She said, oh, I just got some Bulgarian royalties, and I don't know what to do with the money, so let's go for lunch. You know, she's that kind of person. She's really lovely. So she doesn't make you feel like she's doing you a favor. And then I told her this plot, and I often ditch books at 20,000 words. It's like, that's my that's crunch thing. point. It's yeah. a thing. That's, I talked to Linda Holmes about this. She literally said that's like the number. It's is like that 20 really? to 25,000 oh, is yeah. the number. It's vulnerable up yeah. to that point. And I told her the plot, and she said, you have to write this book. And and I thought, well, she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> yeah. And then I got home that evening, and she got her husband, Henry, to ring me up. And he said, 
uh, Sophie's just told me about this book and I say you have to write it as well and so I always say I, I really should have them on a commission because <laughs> none of this would have happened if, mm -hmm. if they hadn't pushed me to do it um, we also talk about shoes a lot <laughs> sure yeah um, I know the answer to this but it's the second time I've heard it this week okay. so I'm going to ask uh, how did you pick Parma Ohio to promote your new book um, I well I'm not given a say in where I go, but I have to say I was delighted because I remembered the event that we did here last time and it was such a pleasure and I remembered it and I don't always remember because I'm a woman of certain years who goes to a lot of places. Um, but we just had a great time last time, so that's why. I think, I think also, I don't know if many writers tell you this, we also get reported on we writers. <laughs> So if the event is successful, that goes back to the big publishers in New York. So it's down to you guys that I'm back. So thank you very much. <laughs> or not, as the case uh, Did you know you were going to continue the story of Louisa Clark when you wrote Me Before You? No, uh, partly because my dad had told me this would be the book that ended my career completely. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. He said it with love, you know, <laughs> as dads do. Sure. Um, yeah, I no, I didn't because at that point I had you know in eight books I'd never troubled the bestseller list once, and I honestly thought that this would you know go out and I I didn't I have a friend who describes being pub, uh, being a published author as being paid to be disappointed once a year, and my career up to that point fit that description. And so when Me Before You initially came out, I had no expectations for it at all. And then this weird thing happened, the thing that every writer dreams about, which is the word of mouth effect. And then I got asked to write the script for MGM. And so for the first time in my life, I wasn't leaving a book behind. I still had these characters in my head and I was being asked questions about them every day. And that's why I ended up thinking, well, what would happen if you'd been part of such a traumatic event what would happen afterwards and, and I suppose because of my history in journalism I'm always interested in the after story you know I want to know what happens to the chambermaid who finds the body what happens to you know the thing that happens after the bank teller who let in the bank robbers I don't know those are the stories that interest me speaking of screenwriting uh, just read that the last letter to your love is headed to the big screen will you be writing the script and do you have any idea on a release date that is forward thinking. That was really that was really impressive because that only got press released yesterday, yeah. and I was, I was in the air when it happened and writing some of the scenes. I'm not the main scriptwriter for this, but uh, I am helping, shall we say? Uh, I think that's the diplomatic term. And um, so I was rewriting some of the period dialogue in the sky yesterday, and then I landed, and there it was. Um, but I'm very excited because they've got uh, a fantastic cast. They've got Shailene Woodley, who some of you may know, yeah. and Felicity Jones, um, and a very handsome young man called Callum Turner, and various other people who you may or may not recognize. Taylor Swift's boyfriend, a guy called Joe Elwin. Um, <laughs> like young gonna, people will know that's that That's going to come up on the yeah. screen, Taylor Swift's boyfriend. That's how they're going to announce yeah. it. I appreciate that that's the way you say that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I also love the idea of you punching up a script based on your own work. <laughs> I just like that a lot. Just like, no, 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 this isn't how it goes. It's, it's actually this. It's, oh, I this is, I, I, I tend to be involved with any adaptation of my own work mm -hmm. uh, for, for more or less. And, and I think, again, because of my history in journalism, I'm quite careful. I, d I work without a lot of ego. So in, on me before you, most days you would have found me sitting with the drivers and the assistants, which is actually the place to get all the gossip anyway. Um, it's, on a film, the writer is the lowest person 
I mean, far less important than the catering truck, like mm -hmm. seriously less important than the catering <laughs> truck. And if you understand that and you go into it understanding the hierarchy of a movie set, then you'll be fine. But I think what happens with a lot of writers, and I had really good advisors. I had friends who were already in the trade who said to me, do not do this, do not do that, do not mm -hmm. do that, whatever the temptation. And I think a lot of writers don't have that advice and they go in and start tapping the director on the shoulder and go, no, 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 no. This should not be like this. And then it gets sticky. Yeah. Uh, if you could choose one of your other books that you've written, what one would you like to see made into a movie? I have a really soft spot for a little book called Silver Bay that I put out many years ago, which is a funny little book set in an Australian whale-watching community. And it opens with a 78-year-old woman who once caught the biggest white shark in New South Wales. And I just loved... It, it, she was a character who fell into my... She was, it was this great, tough, old Australian woman. And... And it's, it's a mad book because I wrote the last chapter first because it has such an audacious twist. I thought, if I can't make the final chapter work, there is no point me writing the other 120,000 words. And I thought it worked. And I'm not sure anybody else did because it didn't sell many. <laughs> but um, I would love to see that, that made into a film. Well, there are some fans clearly of it. Oh, you thank, oh, thank you. <laughs> you liked it, so that was okay. You were that reader. <laughs> Yay. How, are we do, how are we doing on time? Are you still good? Okay, all right, sure. No watch, like we talked about. Um, how, do you stay, uh, how do you stay motivated to write? Do you feel inspired easily, or do you have a process or routine? I love writing. I absolutely love writing. I am, if I don't write for a couple of weeks, I'm kind of difficult to live with. I'm cranky. Um, I, I can't do anything else. I'm not really good at, at much apart from writing and it's how I process the world and in fact you know I was saying that my career was in the doldrums before me before you and I, I have this theory that um, if you go into your publisher you can judge where you are on the scale of you know success by what biscuits they put on the table <laughs> cookies <laughs> cookies and uh, if you're big selling you'll get the handmade oat and raisin you know she she from the delicatessen and I was on the really cheap value packet biscuits <laughs> and I knew my career was kind of in trouble. And I left this meeting and they didn't like the idea for me before you and I, I remember sitting on a London bus, the top deck of the London bus and I was thinking, well, what can I do? I, I need another job. I think I was about 40. And, um, and I looked out of the window and there was a mounted policewoman. Uh, and sorry, do you have the same saying? It was a policewoman on horseback. I don't know if that's the same saying here. <laughs> but, um, and I thought, oh, I could be a mounted policewoman. I could retrain as a mounted policewoman. And then my very next thought was, I could write a really interesting book about being a mounted policewoman. And then I realized I was done for, that I'm mm -hmm. actually no good for anything else. Um, yeah, that's how I see the world. A three line of horses is basically yeah. a lot of horses. Horses yeah. and writing, right. yeah, it's a dream. I remember you said, uh, there was a story to go along with this one. Have you ever owned other dogs besides Great Pyrenees? Okay, so um, some of you may follow my... Instagram account which has a dog called Big Dog who we adopted from a, a shelter um, age seven and she's a great Pyrenean and she's basically the biggest great Pyrenean in the world. She weighs 58 kilos. Uh, she's enormous. She's beautiful and tricky and characterful and uh, yeah she's kind of the love of all our lives uh, at home and quite recently uh, I had a tough year this year, and a friend of mine who's a scriptwriter 
posts a lot of sad dog stuff on Twitter, like dogs who need homes. And there was this dog called Karina in Bosnia who had never lived outside a pound and she was six years old. And there was just this sad little face. And they'd put, you know, will Karina never find a home six years in a pound? And I went, oh gosh, it's going to happen, isn't it? And so I applied for Karina. I had the home check. Um, to cut a really long story short, several months later, I waited for a van of burly Bosnians to drive three days <laughs> across Europe with 20 dogs in the back that were being dropped off. Uh, she was traumatized when she got to me. I had to wait in a lay-by in Essex. You know, it was like when we used to go to raves in the 1980s where basically you wouldn't even be told an address. You'd be told, call this, call this number at <laughs> such and such a time. And it led me to this place where boy races were racing up and down and drugs were being sold and I was like I don't know why I'm here I'm here to pick up a dog because like <laughs> and anyway she, she I managed to get her into the boot of my car with the aid of these Bosnian guys we get her home she is so terrified of everything she's gorgeous but she's terrified and then I had a dinner date with Anne Patchett in London now you don't turn down a dinner date with Anne Patchett it's Anne Patchett so I was like said to my husband, look, here's all the instructions. You know where this is going, right? Here's all the instructions. This is what you must not do. This is what the charity has given us, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yes. And he printed them out and he gave them to each of our three kids. And he was like, you must read these. You know, it's very important. Do you think he read them himself? <laughs> anyway, I went to stay in London because uh, we live like two hours out of London. And uh, the next morning, I get up and at eight o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call going... <sighs> I've lost her. And I went, what? And she'd slipped the lead and gone. And I howled. I just howled. I was like, this is a Bosnian dog, traumatized. She doesn't know where she is. This is a really long story, so I'm going to keep it really short. I employed Colin, the pet detective. (laughs) So for the next 12 days, you would have found me uh, first pinning up posters around asking everybody not to chase her but to call us when they'd spotted her. Colin told me incidentally and if any of you ever lose your dog they don't go off in straight lines they triangulate around the place that they know to try oh. and reassure themselves. I know everything there is to know about dog capture now. Karina is also the most expensive rescue dog in history. <laughs> I was leaving trails of fresh chicken, uh, sardine oil, um, I, I was rubbing pedigree chum, uh, like a disgusting dog food, onto tree bark to try and tempt her back towards her house. I was buying humane pet traps. Uh, Colin cost me a fortune. Uh, but the upshot is 12 days later, we got her back. I got up at 5 a.m. and there she was in our orchard in the humane trap, really cross, really <laughs> cross. And the first thing he'd said to me is, I know you think she's traumatized and she's by herself. I'm going to tell you, she is having the time of her life. <laughs> and so it was. And she's only just started to forgive us because uh, now she's bonded with the other two dogs and she comes in and she's happy and we're a month in. But um, let's just oh. say it was not a happy time in our household. <laughs> yeah. There's your next book. Yeah, really. Oh, I'm too afraid. Once she's really settled down. But um, yeah, so she was called Karina. And then we thought we'd get, find another nice name for her. And people were suggesting things. But at the moment, um, she's called Bosni Dog. <laughs> because, yeah. Well, I, I mean, we have some left, but I feel like... Yeah, and my husband sends a picture of her every day in a new situation, like a, a hostage victim, just to prove that he still has her. Like holding a newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Is time for one more? 
One more? One okay, more. got one more. Okay. Okay. So um, how did how did the I don't this is about the book again. I want to talk more about the dogs more. <laughs> uh, okay. Back to it. Okay. How do the characters of The Giver of Stars compare to other books you've written? Are there any similarities between the characters? Uh no, I would say Marjorie is the toughest character I've ever written. But what I also wanted to show is that you can be tough and singular, but you will find more strength in the companionship and friendship of other people. And I have found as a woman of certain years that other women are the great consolation of getting older. Like, my female friendships are the best thing in the world. I just, I, I couldn't be here if it wasn't for them. So I really wanted to show that. And I don't think I've ever written a kind of group female friendship before. And I, I, what I wanted to show is every one of these characters gains from the friendship of the others. So there's a character called Izzy who had polio, which was quite a, a big thing at that point mm -hmm. time. And she learns to reassess her own strengths and how she views herself. Sophia learns that you know there is a, 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 a reason to trust people who to, to look out for her um, and do the job that she loves. Mm -hmm. Alice learns that she's not the person that everyone has always told she was. And then there's Beth, who is a, another unusual character who... Well, actually, she's just Beth. You kind of have to read <laughs> Beth. I can't really describe her. But as a whole, they, they are instrumental when working as a team in saving more than one person's lives in different ways. And, and that really was a pleasure for me to write. That's a good way to end. That's perfect, yeah. Well, Jojo, thank, <laughs> thank you very you. much for joining thank us you. today. Thank you for lovely Thank questions. you, guys. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.